Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. A lot of refugees come here because they think America as a whole is a safe haven, and they quickly learn the truth after they get introduced to America's immigration system. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Immigration law is a mystery. Unless you're an immigrant seeking relief under the law, or you're an immigration law attorney, it's an unknown. But earlier this year, Carla McCanders, a professor of immigration law at Vanderbilt Law School, sent us an email. Her law students were producing their final reports on immigration and refugee law as audio stories, and would Life of the Law be interested in listening to and possibly publishing their work as part of our New Voices series? Absolutely. Tony Gannon, our senior producer, and I met with the class for a conference call workshop, but they were already well on their way to building their stories. Now, Life of the Law presents three of the audio stories produced by the students in Professor McCander's immigration law class at Vanderbilt University Law School. A note, they were not asked to approach their project as journalists, but as law students, so some of their stories include their perspectives on immigration and refugee law. Our first story comes from Joshua Minchin. He reports that many refugees leave their home country because of a well-founded fear they will be persecuted if they remain. And as Joshua reports, how well-founded fear is defined and interpreted can make a profound difference for individuals seeking refuge in the United States. Well-Founded Fear by Joshua Minchin. A refugee is someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, member of a particular social group, or political opinion. A well-founded fear, of course, yeah. Most, for our case, uh, we had that because, of course, I was young, as I said, five years old, and I didn't know exactly why we were leaving the country. I figured out later when I tried to ask for those who survived, but they explained, but for me at that time, I didn't know what was going on, but of course, we were scared. I want to highlight the fact that there is a lot of literature out there explaining that the United States has been out of compliance with international refugee law since the Supreme Court decisions of INS v. Stevic and INS v. Cardoza-Fonseca came out in the 1980s, and we'll talk about those a little more in a few minutes. These issues affect real people. And so today what I want to do is allow us to hear from Kwong Chol and from Claude Rutete again as they tell us a little bit about their background and how this concept of well-founded fear applies to clients that they work with who are refugees. And then we'll end the program by talking a little bit more about the significance of this non-compliance with international law. My name is Kwong Chol. 
I'm originally from Sudan. The fear is already there in, with you when you come from the area that has uh, audience in, in war. For example, people uh, traumatized by war. So this is exactly the people that been in the war for so long. They have a fear of no, not knowing what exactly is there because they went through a lot of things in their life. Uh, people talk about their experiences, what they went through it in the war towns areas. So that their family going through, even though they are here, some of the family members that left all back home. My name is Claude Rutete and I'm one of the health caseworkers here at Nashville International Center for Empowerment, but I'm originally from Democratic Republic of Congo. So yeah, for most of the refugees I've been dealing with, some of them have a trauma, they even hate to think about their past, so they still have that fear in their, life, in their everyday life if they think about the past. Well-founded fear has two components, an objective and a subjective component. Objectively, what do we know about the country that this individual is coming from or the particular violence that this individual may have faced or be facing uh, in the country that they came from? And then because of that, subjectively, is this particular individual subject to have um, a well-founded fear from the area that they are coming from? Now, almost universally, if an individual is able to demonstrate this well-founded fear uh, on account of one of the enumerated grounds of race, religion, nationality, membership, a particular social group, or political opinion, then that individual is able to essentially take advantage of the rights that are granted to them by international law within the Refugee Convention. Then the Refugee Convention Article 1 defines a refugee, and then Articles 2 through 34 uh, enumerate particular rights of refugees. However, the United States, in two Supreme Court decisions, INS v. Stevic in 1984 and INS v. Cardoza-Fonseca in 1987, shifted away from international norms and really international law. In discussing the INS v. Stevic and INS v. Cardoza-Fonseca decisions, Mr. James Hathaway, he wrote in 2000 that those two decisions essentially determined that there was really only one obligation um, that the United States under the Refugee Convention needed to provide to refugees, and that was of non-refoulement. But he goes on to say that really what the Supreme Court's view was was that even this non-refoulement under Article 33, it was really only applicable to individuals not just who meet the definition of a refugee, but to a subset of super-refugees able to show a probability of persecution. So he goes on to say that persons who are able to simply meet the convention's requirement of having a well-founded fear of being persecuted are not rights holders at all. Furthermore, Joan Fitzpatrick, another refugee scholar, wrote back in 1997 that as a result of those two decisions, the United States is seriously out of compliance with the single most important and peremptory norm of refugee law, the prohibition on non-refoulement. 
Non-refoulement is the practice of a country who receives a refugee or an asylum seeker. It's the practice of not returning that refugee or asylum seeker to a country in which that individual might be liable or subjected to persecution. The impact that this has is that there are individuals who may very well face horrible things in their home country. They somehow are able to escape, escape out of the clutches of whatever horror, whatever problem, whatever issue that they are facing, come to the United States, meet the convention's definition of a refugee, meet that well-founded fear of being persecuted standard, but not actually be granted the rights enumerated in the Refugee Convention, not actually be granted the rights that they should be given under international law because of these two decisions, because of Stevic and because of Cardozo-Fonseca. Now because of this, I really hope that, that one day, either through legislation overturning these or through the Supreme Court again addressing refugee law, which, which does not happen very often, that they will take another look at this and help ensure that the United States not just abides by, but is a leader in international refugee law. Before starting law school at Vanderbilt, I worked for a nonprofit refugee resettlement agency called World Relief. When I worked at World Relief, I worked with individuals who suffered all kinds of horrible terrors, individuals who escaped all sorts of horrors and trials, and it breaks my heart that there are individuals who may be facing something, but because they're not able to prove some higher level, some uh, higher definition, some probability of persecution instead of just a well-founded fear, that there are rights that they would be granted in some other country, but that they're not granted in the United States. And I really hope that one day our laws will change to ensure that refugee rights, rights that refugees deserve, that they are able to obtain those all the time. I think that that is something that's very important. In conclusion, well-founded fear is at the core of the definition of a refugee. The United States, because of INSV Stevic and INSV Cardoza Fonseca, is not in compliance with international law and stands by itself among signatories in not providing automatically all persons who meet the uh, definition of a refugee with all of the rights that they deserve. But most importantly, as we're talking about these cases and laws and policies and different things, let's not lose sight of the people and the stories behind the policies. That was Joshua Minchin with his report on well-founded fear in the first of our series on refugee law by students in Professor McCander's immigration law class at Vanderbilt University Law School. So if a refugee appears in a U.S. immigration court with a claim of well-founded fear, Will they receive a fair, neutral hearing by a court, or do judges bring their own bias to the bench in asylum hearings? Now we present our second story, The Wrong Judge at the Wrong Time, by Samina Greku. 
Today, I will be discussing the American asylum system and how that system treats asylum applicants unfairly. I will be interviewing Mary Durbin, who is an immigration attorney in Dallas, and we will mainly be discussing the fact that asylum grant rates vary widely between judges and analyzing how those differences in grant rates impact asylum seekers. I have been practicing immigration law exclusively since November 2011. I have spent roughly four and a half years of my career devoted exclusively to asylum cases. During that time, I was working with Human Rights Initiative of North Texas, and I recently returned to private immigration practice this past October. I then asked Mary whether she knew about discrepancies between asylum grant rates, especially as it pertains to the southern states, since that is the area she is most familiar with. There have been studies uh, done on this by you know, various law school clinics and nonprofits that documented what they have dubbed asylum-free zones, and five out of six of those cities that fall within the South. So the six cities are Houston, Charlotte, Atlanta, Dallas, where I practice, and Las Vegas. So just in case anyone needs to hear that again, six U.S. cities have been labeled asylum-free zones. I actually looked up the 2017 article that Mary was talking about, and it defines asylum-free zones as areas where asylum seekers are systematically denied protection regardless of the dangers they're fleeing. So why don't asylum applicants just steer clear of those cities? The problem is that asylum applicants often don't have a choice of which city to file in because many end up settling in a particular city because it's the first place they arrive to after leaving their countries or they have family there or they simply do not have the means to travel anywhere else. Also, when you come into the country as a refugee, no one hands you a pamphlet telling you which cities you have the best chances of winning asylum in. A lot of refugees come here because they think America as a whole is a safe haven, and they quickly learn the truth after they get introduced to America's immigration system. I then asked Mary about Dallas specifically. And I I looked at the latest available information for Dallas immigration judges, And the grant rates for those judges vary from the highest grant rate for any of the Dallas immigration judges over the last five years of data was 30%, and the lowest was 6.2%. You might think 6.2% is really low, but it gets worse. I looked at a website called TRAC, which compiles data about immigration judges and their decisions, And their table of judges and decisions from 2012 to 2017 reveals that there are judges who only grant asylum in 1.2% of cases. The table even had one judge from Louisiana who had a 0% grant rate. On the other end of the spectrum are judges who grant asylum in 96% of cases, but they are the anomaly. Mary went on to discuss discrepancies between different cities within the U.S., and just to give you a sense of the comparisons um, of, of, you know, the vast disparity across the country, um, I, there's also a, a study done by Reuters, um, I believe it was in October 2017, and the article started off by 
comparing two Honduran women's cases, which have the same, essentially the same facts. There were some differences, but they were applying for asylum on the same basis, on the same set of facts, on the same legal claim. And one ended up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the other ended up in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. The Charlotte case lost and the San Francisco case won. And it's really no surprise when you look at the statistics because the Charlotte court, the immigration judges as a whole there, order removed 84% of the individuals that come before them. Wow. In contrast, in San Francisco, only 36% of the cases end up getting ordered removed. Right. So it, that just kind of illustrates the, the vast disparity in depending on what jurisdiction, just the luck of the draw, where you end up. Given these very bleak numbers, I asked Mary if there are times when she is nervous about a client's case simply because it was assigned to a certain judge. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I know immigration attorneys who refuse to take cases that are assigned to particular judges, and needless to say, that terribly impacts asylum seekers because they might not end up with competent representation or any representation at all. So, but it's from a practitioner's perspective, it is very discouraging to have a prospective client come to you when they're assigned to judges who have a 6% grant rate. You know, you, you think you, you're, you have no realistic shot, even if you give it your all. So it can be very, uh, very discouraging. In my experience, the immigration judges tend to be like a second prosecutor. It, it often feels as if they are teaming up against us um, with the DHS attorney and give no pretense of a lack of bias or much sensitivity to how their questioning might affect someone or even re-traumatize someone who's gone through terrible violence and persecution. After hearing the struggle against bias that Mary and many other immigration attorneys face, the natural thing to do is ask whether there's anything lawyers can do currently to address these problems. Honestly, our recourse is very limited. All that we can do is appeal the case if it gets denied and or potentially file a complaint with EOIR, the agency I mentioned that oversees the immigration judges, but those complaints tend to go nowhere and uh, practitioners tend not to even make the complaints mm -hmm. and just the complaint system is essentially meaningless because if there's any kind of reprimand of the immigration judges, it's not terribly meaningful or significant. It tends to be training or counseling. It's very rare that an immigration judge would be suspended or taken off the bench entirely for what, in many cases, in my opinion, can be serious misconduct, um, deprivations of due process. Anecdotally, I can tell you the places that I've worked and other immigration attorneys I know tend to be hesitant to even file complaints because of fear that these particular immigration judges will know that we filed complaints against them and will retaliate against our clients. In the interest of being fair to judges, 
Mary pointed out that sometimes judges make certain unfavorable decisions because they are simply bound by the precedent of the circuits that they sit in. A Fifth Circuit judge just does not have as much latitude as a Ninth Circuit judge does. However, changes can and should be made to address judge bias, make the system more fair, and hold judges accountable. One of those changes should be hiring judges of more diverse backgrounds, since the majority of immigration judges have previously worked for the government, which makes them more likely to take the government side. Additionally, most immigration judges are male, which statistically also makes them more likely to deny asylum. Ultimately, a better complaint system must be created, which ensures that attorneys will not be retaliated against for making complaints. And immigration judges should be subject to more reviews of their performance, especially when they are at the very low or very high end of the spectrum when it comes to grant rates. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope I've been able to shed some light on a very serious problem facing asylum seekers in the United States. That was Samina Greku with The Wrong Judge at the Wrong Time, the second in our special series on refugee law. Now, our final story. The U.S. places an important role in helping refugees throughout the world by providing funding to the United Nations. But this year, the Trump administration cut funding to the U.N. agency that provides services to refugees. Rachel Pakulski takes a look at the impact of these cuts on one group of refugees, 5 million Palestinians. Rachel Pakulski. Sleeping in a cramped house on wood boards, a grandfather living in Gaza only wants what is best for his grandchildren. But with an UNRWA funding cut, he worries his grandchildren will become criminals and thieves, stealing bread just to survive. A Palestinian mother of two children already feels defeated and cannot understand why anyone would want to oppress her family more. These stories are real and happening now as the cut in UNRWA funding has become a reality. The Palestinian refugee crisis began in 1948 and has constituted one of the largest, longest-lasting, unresolved refugee conflicts in the world today. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency, from here on out referred to us as UNRWA, currently provides services such as education and health care to over 5 million Palestinian refugees in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. According to the source, the mandate of UNRWA at 60, a person who meets UNRWA's definition of a Palestinian refugee is defined as a person whose normal place of residence was Palestine during the period of June 1st, 1946 to May, 1948, and who lost both home and means of livelihood as a result of the 1948 conflict. The core focus of UNRWA is to provide service to those persons falling under this definition. The United States has been UNRWA's largest donor, supplying almost 30% of the overall budget. Yet earlier this year, the Trump administration decided to withhold 65 million of its planned contribution of $125 million. As a comparison to show the true impact of this cut, last year, the total US contribution was about 350 million. On January 2nd, Donald Trump, through Twitter of course, tweeted, It's not only Pakistan that we pay billions of dollars to for nothing, but also many other countries. As an example, 
we pay the Palestinians hundreds of millions of dollars a year and get no appreciation or respect. Reactions to this cut in UNRWA funding spurred a variety of different emotions across the globe. Many were shocked, alarmed, devastated, and fearful of the consequences that are to come. The spokesperson for UNRWA, Chris Ganes, reacted in a similar fashion, calling the reduction regrettable. The reduction of U.S. funding is regrettable, but it's also abrupt and harmful. At risk is the longest-standing, most successful and highly innovative human development and humanitarian program with the United Nations in the Middle East. At risk is the education of half a million children. 1.7 million food insecure people may not get food and cash. We're working to protect women, vulnerable children, the elderly, the sick, the dying, These are the people who one has to think of tonight. As I say, the reduction is regrettable. Queen Renaya al-Abdullah of Jordan also had comments in regards to the massive cut in UNRWA funding by the Trump administration. UNRWA is a very important organization, and I think uh, cutting the um, aid that goes uh, to them will have a devastating impact on many uh, Palestinians, including hundreds of thousands of children who attend UNRWA schools. Um, you know, UNRWA is a lifeline for uh, Palestinian refugees, and there are over 5 million of them, 40% are uh, living in Jordan, and they rely on the organization for vital services, including health, education, etc., and assistance. And so we feel that the mandate, their mandate should not end until there has been a resolution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the, Palestinian of a, the establishment of a Palestinian state. Only then will their mandate end, and that is the day that we look forward to. Queen al-Abdullah highlights the importance of funding for children attending UNRWA schools in a similar manner to Mr. Ganes. Current UNRWA statistics show that 525,000 boys and girls attend 700 UNRWA schools. A cut in funding like this directly threatens the education of this, these children, and more importantly, their futures. I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. David McRae, a doctor, professor, and expert in healthcare in the region of Palestine. Every year, he takes a one-month global health trip to Palestine, focusing on public policy and healthcare systems. In response to my question, Regarding the cut in UNRWA funding, Dr. McRae addressed its devastating effects, speaking directly to the current administration and the possible effects it will have on health care. It's a sad reality in our country that neither party has been adequately sympathetic to the Palestinian situation. It's, it's the reality of American politics that you have to pledge your undying support to the state of Israel in order to get elected to national office. And so um, it's very difficult for us to imagine how to change that policy. But, you know, what's unique about the, the current administration is this hardline stand that they've taken. I don't have any hope under the current administration that, that things are going to get better and, and their position about UNRWA, um, is, I think, is potentially devastating. He went on to provide some specifics about the healthcare system in Palestine and why UNRWA funding has been crucial. Decrease to the funding of UNRWA has a direct impact on the uh, health care resources for Palestinians. The whole system really is in jeopardy. The Palestinian health care system is largely dependent on donor aid. So as long as, as long as the refugee status remains and you've got 
these several million people within Palestine and the surrounding areas who hold refugee cards, then they need funding from UNRWA to provide their health care. There's only one hospital in the entire world that's dedicated to to the this largest refugee population, and that's this small hospital in Calcilla. Wow. So obviously they can't provide that care, and most people can't access the hospital. So what they do is UNRWA pays for healthcare for their refugees in hospitals all over the West Bank and Israeli hospitals, Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian. Um, so wherever there are Palestinians holding refugee cards, then UNRWA funds their health care. So any significant um, decrease to the funding of UNRWA has a direct impact on the uh, health care resources for Palestinians. Following this conversation with Dr. McRae, as a law student with little knowledge of healthcare systems, it was shocking to learn about the true impact a cut in funding like this one can have on healthcare, specifically in regards to accessible hospitals. So now we are left with questions of what comes next. What is the future of Palestinian refugees? How will UNRWA continue to perform its duties? Will another country step in? It is clear that the refugee community in Palestine needs support. The UNRWA Commissioner General issued a statement on January 16th of this year following the decision to cut funding, and I will end with some of his final thoughts. He said that the situation of refugees in Palestine is far too serious to indulge in despair. UNRWA stands for hope, respect, and dignity, and he encompassed this glimpse of hope in the end of his statement. Drawing strength from the Palestinian refugees who have taught us that giving up is simply not an option, and therefore, even in the wake of a burden like this one, UNRWA will not give up either. Thank you. That was Rachel Pakulski with her report on Trump administration cuts to the UN agency that provides services for refugees throughout the world. This episode of Life of the Law was produced in partnership with law professor Carla McAndrews immigration law students at Vanderbilt Law School. We want to thank Professor McAndrews for reaching out to Life of the Law and her students, Joshua Minchin, Samina Grecu, and Rachel Pakulski. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, to hear more stories by McAndrews law students on refugee law. Tony Gannon produced this episode with associate producer Andrea Hendrickson. Andrea composed the music in this episode with additional music by Alex Blank. Our social media editor is Rachel Kane. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us your story. Send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who's subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming episodes. You can subscribe on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. This week, Joshua, Samina, and Rachel share their experience producing their first audio story. And if you're a law professor or a law student, let us know if you're producing or are considering producing audio stories about the law in all our lives. We're listening. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We hope you'll take a minute to support production of episodes like this one on refugee law. Go to our website, lifeofthelaw.org. The support button is on the homepage. Your donation helps cover the direct production costs of our upcoming episodes, like the next episode on lawyers who practice immigration law.
They've all said that immigration law is as complex as uh, as bankruptcy law, and uh, it's a maze that you have to find your way through, and uh, you need someone who really knows the law. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>